And so without further ado, this week we are so blessed to, uh, to welcome uh, Dr. Chris Willard with us um, for this session. And this session is particularly going to be around, there are two parts of this session, and it's about how we can support um, young people and children through uh, mindfulness. And um, Dr. Chris Willard is, is so experienced in this. I've been looking recently at some of his work, which has been uh, really inspiring, actually, um, uh, in terms of the work that he's been doing with young people. So um, he's a clinical psychologist, he's an author, and a consultant uh, based in Massachusetts, and he teaches at the Harvard Medical School. He's also authored many books, and uh, the most recent one is The Breathing Book in 2000, uh, 2020, um, which he authored. So we, we are absolutely delighted. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much. And it's, it's really a pleasure to be here also. Um, hopefully, again, at some point in person, we'll be able to, to, to kind of co-regulate with our nervous systems all together in the same room, but I do feel like it's been impressively possible to do that online these last 18 months or so. Um, so again, I just would like to thank the everyone behind the scenes um, at the Oxford Mindfulness Center. I know that there's so much work behind the scenes that goes into these kinds of events, um, being on the planning committee for one um, at Harvard, just knowing these kinds of lecture series are a lot of work. So I really just appreciate the work that everyone's done um, behind the scenes to make this happen and to have me here. And of course, it's just such an incredible honor. Um, I've been following the work of the center for a long time um, and inspired so much by the work. And yeah, so without, without further ado, I'll be here um, this week and next. Um, so if you, you have other folks that you wanna encourage to, to jump on next week, I'll be sharing a little bit more in this series. And it's so also just wonderful to see folks from just all over the world. Um, and I find it so inspiring to see the ways that mindfulness has really grown around the world. Um, and also the work I've done, it's been a pleasure just to see travel places and see the work that mindfulness with kids, with young people, with families, with students, with teenagers, with university students has also just really started to, to spread. And, and in many ways, of course, makes so much sense, right? I, I truly believe that in many ways, we're not trying to teach kids mindfulness, right? They're already rather naturally mindfulness. I've got a three-year-old at home and a seven-year-old at home, and they just explore the world without too much judgment and they're really able to live quite in the moment and so in some ways it's more about how do we preserve this mindfulness in them how do we continue to keep it alive these seeds that are already there as they start to get older um, and as culture and, and the world's demands start to push them out of the moment in different ways but i thought we could just open by by settling in with a, a brief practice. So I'll invite everyone, you can just find yourself that comfortable mindful posture or sometimes with younger people, we say get into your mindful bodies. I'll invite folks, if you feel comfortable, you can allow your eyes to close, but that's not mandatory. And it's certainly not when we're thinking about sharing these practices with young people. You might just rest them. I used to say on the floor in front of you. Now I say, just rest them on your keyboard. Just checking in with your body. And checking in with your breath.
Just feeling a sense of uplift in your body. Still, calm and confident body, just sitting like a mountain. And thoughts will arise, distractions, and you can just come back to this image of your body, just sitting as still as a mountain. Perhaps shifting your awareness now to your breath, just watching, listening and enjoying the gentle rise and fall of each inhale, of each exhale. Just experiencing your breath like waves in the ocean Just like the waves, some breaths are longer, some shorter. Some smooth, some rough. But just like the waves, your breath will just keep coming one after the next, after the next. Perhaps bring your awareness to your mind and seeing your mind like the sky, just open, vast, accepting of whatever comes through. Thoughts or worries may come through like clouds or storms and yet the sky is always there behind them. Just watching as they drift by and eventually pass. Ring the bell once more. You can just raise your eyes. And actually, before, before you come back to the screen, we're all sick of Zoom. Let's be real. <laughs> Take a look. Take a look around the room. Maybe even take a look out the window, just taking a few moments. Actually, before the pandemic, I, I learned this nice practice when we spend a lot of time online, adults or kids, 20, 20, 20. About every 20 minutes or so, just take about 20 seconds to look about maybe 20 meters or so in the distance, if you can, out the window, see what's out there. And just bringing your awareness back once more to the screen. So, so good to see folks. And I wanna just begin by sharing a little bit about 
where I got started with this whole thing of sharing mindfulness with young people, which I know sounds completely crazy. And so a lot of folks are like, mindfulness with kids, that's uh, good luck with that, right? I remember when I first got started with this, but I actually, and, and I've had this interest for now 20 some years I've been doing this. I know I look like I'm about 11 years old, but mindfulness keeps you young, I guess is the good news. Um, but I, I think about being a kid and having experiences of mindfulness or something like mindfulness before I even heard that word. And I was just saying to folks before the session started, my son right now is at this wonderful nature farm camp, not too far from our house. And I actually went to this same camp when I was little. And I remember when I was not much older than him, the counselor saying, we're gonna go into the, into the forest, the red pine forest. We're gonna walk as silently as we can in the forest. We'll see what more we notice when we're silent. We don't scare the animals away. And then many years later, 20 years later, 15 years later, right? I took a mindfulness course, an MBSR course, and we did mindful walking. And I know a lot of folks have done an eight-week course and, and mindful walking, right? You're really focused on each footstep. And you're not thinking about the past or the future. And if you've ever tried to walk as silently as possible, then guess what? You're not thinking about the past, the future. You're just thinking about what's the texture of the ground? How am I moving my legs? How am I moving my feet? And so this light bulb went off. Oh, this is, you know, this mindful walking thing. This, this is kind of familiar to an experience I've already had. And of course, whenever we work with kids or with anybody teaching, right, we want to build on existing experience, build on existing knowledge. So I share this oftentimes. And of course, you know, maybe the counselors were just trying to get us to shut up a bunch of rowdy kids, right? But it still had this tremendous impact on me of like, wow, what a wonderful memory. And then we'd sit down in the forest. And they say, we're gonna, we're gonna take a moment, we're gonna listen to all the sounds that we can hear in the silence of the forest. You know, eight years old, we're like, we're not gonna hear anything, right? And then sure enough, right, can you hear the trees whispering? Yes. Can you hear the brook babbling in the distance? Oh, yeah. Taking about five minutes just to notice listening Right? For those few minutes, suddenly like the forest came alive in all these ways. And that's like a mindful listening exercise. Right? It's sort of in many ways how we frame it. Or other memories of being with my dad, and he got very interested in mindfulness later in, in life. Both of my parents did, but they didn't have it at, at that time. But he was reading a book about meditation, and I was sitting in this pond with him, and we're looking up at the sky, floating on this raft. And he says, I learned this, I learned this magic trick do you want to learn a magic trick? And of course, I'm eight years old. I'm like, oh yeah, I want to learn some magic from my dad. And he says, you know, pick a, pick a cloud in the sky, pick just a small puffy cloud and just focus on that cloud and just breathe. And if you keep breathing, you can actually make the cloud disappear with your mind. And, you know, of course, spoiler alert, the cloud's going to disappear no matter what I do, <laughs> right? But, but as a kid, it just felt so magical just to be watching the clouds, right? Start to change shape and you know, turn into animals, whatever it is, and then eventually just disappear, drifting away or just evaporating altogether. So these contemplative practices that were something like mindfulness, they really stuck with me. They were really, in many ways, these seeds that were planted that then 15 years later, I'm at university, I'm having a very difficult time, 20, 22 years old, something like that. I took a couple of years off, to kind of like find myself or get my act together, whatever we want to call it, right? And suddenly found 
stumbled into mindfulness. I took that MBSR course with a friend. My parents basically dragged me onto a retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh in 1999, 98, I think it was. And, and it was so transformative for me. Suddenly things started to make sense. I certainly felt less depressed and less anxious, but I also felt that connection with other people, connection with so many other things in my life that from there I was like, I, you know, uh, the fire was lit, right? I was like, mindfulness, this is my thing, right? Went back to school, finished my degree, actually as an English major, not as a psych major, but I have parlayed that into doing a lot of writing um, as an English major. And I worked doing a number of different jobs for a few years. I was a special education teacher. I can't remember what, what exactly you um, call that over in the UK, but for kids with emotional issues and kids with learning issues and tried and mostly failed to introduce mindfulness to that group of kids. And then I went back to school for psychology, clinical psychology. So in the early 2000s, this was really when mindfulness was starting to take off. A lot of the research on MBSR, MBCT, of course, out of, out of the UK was starting to get researched um, and so much more. And I went through school, continuing to learn in class, but also go on retreats and maintain my own practice and things like that. And did my doctoral research on whether it was possible, in fact, to share mindfulness with kids or not. Um, and that, that became the basis of um, a book that I wrote. And then since then, I've been a clinical psychologist and I spend my days, my, my day job, as I kind of joke, I'm in my office, right? The clients sit on that couch behind me um, when we do meet in person or we meet on Zoom oftentimes as well, right? And work with kids, work with adolescents, work with adults, work with families. And so much of that work is about integrating mindfulness in formal ways, through formal practices that we do in the session, and through more informal ways of encouraging the folks I work with to find ways to bring more mindfulness into their lives. I also do a lot of consulting in schools, in hospitals, um, in other organizations, and, and things like that. So that's a little bit about me. And I thought I would just start by sharing, I, I think we're all on the same page You've all done a course. We all know what mindfulness is, although I do think it's useful to not just have those, those verbal definitions of mindfulness, but to think back. What to you were maybe some of those moments, like me walking silently in the woods or watching the clouds or listening to the sounds in the forest. I wanna walk us through a little bit of a model that I use to think about how do we teach kids mindfulness, young people mindfulness? Um, why do we wanna share it with them? Um, I come from, again, I'm a clinical psychologist. I come with a mental health angle. So that's um, a little bit more of the angle that I'll be coming at this with. Um, and then we'll spend a lot of time toward the end of today and a lot more next week thinking about how do we adapt these practices for young people. Um, there's good science, but I'm sure you've had plenty of wonderful lectures uh, from other folks on what the science of mindfulness is. The good news is there's a lot of research on mindfulness with adolescents and, and young people as well. Um, and next week, we'll also talk a bit more about how, you know, we, we all believe in mindfulness. You're all here, hundred something people who are like, hey, mindfulness is great, right? But how do we convince kids, right? What is this thing, right? How do we, in, in the US, we say, how do we get buy-in from kids? And we'll be doing a lot of practices as we go because I, I do feel it's so important to be practicing what we might wanna share um, and getting a sense. And also hopefully that leaves us all feeling a little bit more 
settled by, by the end of the time today. And oh my gosh, the time is already going very quickly by. So <laughs> with that, I, I wanna just share a little bit about, when I share this, um, uh, this, this meme I saw online recently, and it says, never in the history of calming down has anyone ever calmed down by being told to calm down. And um, I don't know if anyone can relate to this as a parent or an educator or therapist or anything like that. But I do think it's, it, it, the reason I like to share this is because where we actually need to start is with ourselves. That actually, right, teaching kids mindfulness is not just saying go breathe, right? It's actually modeling. And what we know also in terms of the research is that what we're actually really doing with young people, especially when they're very young, is we start out, they're not able to self-regulate. Their brains are not developed enough, right? A baby cries when they're hungry, when they're tired, when they're lonely, when they want affection, right? They don't know how to self-soothe. So what we do is a process called co-regulation, where as we start to calm our nervous systems down through mindfulness, through whatever practices we have, that actually then becomes essentially contagious, right? As we rock a child, as we give them a hug, as we speak in soft tones, where they then learn how to settle themselves down. And I also want to emphasize mindfulness for kids, especially, right? It's not about here's how to calm down, right? This isn't like a, you know, behavioral intervention <laughs> to get our kids to shut up, right? It's, it's about how do we actually teach them how to, how to use these skills and maintain these skills but it really, really starts with us. And the research really bears this out as well. Parents who practice mindfulness, the kids are, they are actually better behaved, they're calmer, there's fewer accidents in the home, there's better communication in the home. Therapists who practice mindfulness, their clients get better faster. If there's educators in the crowd, educators, even if you don't share this stuff with the kids, actually your students, right? What happens is they actually still learn better from a more mindful teacher. People living together. And yeah, guess what? In this pandemic, right, we've all been living with just a few people, right? And hopefully we're getting out a little bit more now as things get a little bit safer. But again, all of our emotions are actually quite contagious. The states of our nervous system are quite contagious. And so what we know that stress is contagious, we know that anxiety is contagious. We also know that mindfulness is contagious. And that's one of the best things that we can, we can offer our kids is our presence. So I get asked all the time, I do workshops and talk to people and someone always comes up, it's like, well, how do I create more mindful kids? Or you know, how do we create a more mindful school or more mindful students? And I, I finally reduced it to this, okay? It's easy. The best way to create stressed out, miserable kids, very simple. You just surround them with stressed out, miserable adults, right? You can just watch this happening. And so then the best way to create more mindful, compassionate kids is actually to surround them with more mindful, compassionate adults. So it comes back to us. This makes sense logically, and it also just the, the research backs it up. So the way I like to think about teaching and sharing mindfulness with kids is we start with our own practice at the base. And then we start to build a culture of mindfulness in the adults, whether that's the family or whether that's the school or whether that's the hospital or right, whether that's the, the camp that they're at. I work with a lot of camp counselors lately as camps go back into session. And then we start to actually teach the kids some of these practices at the next level. We 
do a five minute practice, a 10 minute practice, one minute breathing. And then we encourage the kids to integrate this into their lives. And then maybe the, the, the children and the adolescents and everyone we work with, they're living a bit more mindfully and informally bringing mindfulness into their lives. And of course, we know that for adults, that's a tall order, right? To be mindful of everything that we do, but it's what we're aiming for, right? So we're trying to, to help the kids bring a bit more living, living mindfully to, to everything that they do. So I don't wanna spend long on thinking about how to define mindfulness. And again, I think oftentimes it's useful to hold the definition that's kind of the more formal one, as well as the definition that's maybe in our hearts in some ways that, right, that listening to sounds in the forest when we're kids or whatever it might be. But I do think it's useful just to think about what are some of the elements of mindfulness. And I read a lot of definitions of mindfulness and I, I reduce them all. They, all. they all have basically three basic parts. And this is actually is important. Pretty much every definition of mindfulness says something about paying attention. And then they all say something about the here and now or the present moment or blah, 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 something like that. And then they all have something about acceptance and non-judgment and trying to do all that on purpose. And one of the things about thinking about how do we share this with kids is that we can, when we teach kids anything, we wanna break it into smaller pieces. We're all very well-educated people here, I have no doubt, but how many of us probably learned calculus when we were in kindergarten, right? Not very many of us. We learned one plus one. And so likewise, and a lot of us actually are fine having never learned calculus. Like I barely got through calculus in, in high school and I turned out okay. And, and likewise with young people, they don't all necessarily need to learn like a super formal practice to have this actually be really helpful for them in terms of emotional regulation, in terms of being able to access these elements, right? Like, like this first one about paying attention We've all probably been told to pay attention. We all probably have at some point yelled at our kids to pay attention to us. And yet so few of us have ever been taught how to pay attention. And so few kids have been taught how to pay attention. So part of what we're doing with mindfulness is we're empowering these young people in how to pay attention. That's gonna help them in school and life and love and driving and work and all these different aspects of their lives. Secondly, this thing about the here and now, and we, we know that research on the here and now, right, um, Killingsworth and, and, and Gilbert, right, um, that, that what we're doing is actually less important than how much we're in the present moment focused on what we're doing. But how in the moment we are is actually what makes us happier, right? So that's about being in the moment. And the way I explain it to young people is I, I think back to my own experience, right? I was you know, back when I was in, in, in high school, I remember being fairly anxious and I'd be thinking, what is today? Today's Wednesday, right? And oh my gosh, there's a test coming up on Friday and I'm probably gonna fail the test and I'm gonna fail out of school and then I'm gonna, you know, never get into college. I'm gonna die alone under a bridge and no one's gonna come to my funeral. And like, oh my gosh, right? That horror story that we tell ourselves about the future. Other, that's anxiety, right? That kind of future focus with the horror story. <laughs> Other kids may, may be something from the past that can be as significant as trauma or neglect, or it can be just like, you know, this is what was going on on the playground 10 minutes ago, or this is what happened at the party last weekend in high school, and they're not able to be in the moment. 
So what does being in the moment mean if I still do have a test coming up on Friday? It means rather than making up a whole story about how I'm gonna bomb the test, why don't I just make a study plan for how to study for the test now? What can I do in this moment that will help for what's happening in the future? And that's sort of how I talk about being in the moment. And you can substitute in different, different pieces of that as well. So getting into the present moment, getting into the here and now. And one of the best ways to get into the present moment, right? We did a little visualization at the beginning, but another really effective thing for all ages is through our five senses. If I clap my hands like that, hopefully we're all present for the sound of that hand clap. And then you go back to seeing what the other notifications are, staring out the window, whatever you're doing, right? But our senses bring us into the present even as our minds race to the future, race to the past. And the other place they race in the default mode network is to comparing ourselves to others. And we certainly know that adolescents are already wired to be constantly comparing themselves to others. That's not usually a happy, fun place for any of us, but certainly teenagers and certainly with social media these days. So getting into our senses grounds us back in the present. And I'll guide us through another practice that I like to use that's a little acronym that can be helpful. And it's called the mindful seat. So we're just gonna tune in now and just notice S for senses and sensations, E for emotions, A for actions, and T for thoughts. So again, you can find that comfortable, mindful body, mindful posture. Lowering your eyes, closing them if that feels all right to you. And tuning into our senses, maybe first, what do you hear? Noticing distant sounds or nearby sounds. As you breathe, noticing what, what smells in your nostrils, sweet or savory, pleasant or unpleasant. Lingering tastes in your mouth. Whether your eyes are open or closed, just noticing what you see that Dancing of shadow and light against your eyelids or the shapes of objects and colors in the room, if your eyes are open. Sensations, perhaps starting at the edges of your body, the temperature of the air, the texture of the clothing against your skin. or perhaps deeper sensations in your body. From there to E for emotions, what emotions are present? 
joy or sorrow, boredom or curiosity, frustration, contentment, simply welcoming all these emotions like visitors from beyond, as Rumi might say, watching as they rise and pass. And turning our awareness to A for actions. And by that, I mean urges, impulses. If you want to take notes, if you want to sip your coffee, if you want to stretch your body, if you want to run out of here screaming, just noticing what are the actions, the impulses arising in this moment, perhaps in reaction or response to your senses and emotions. And lastly, what are the thoughts? T for thoughts, what thoughts are present? My kids will love this, my kids will hate this. What's for dinner? Again, just noticing what thoughts, judgments are here in this moment. Taking the time just to be aware of tuning into senses and sensations, emotions, actions and thoughts. I'll ring the bell once more. And again, you can raise your eyes, maybe look around a bit and then coming back once more to the screen in front of you. So again, beginning with our senses, just checking in. You'll notice also that <clears throat> as I teach, I offer a few more prompts than I might with an adult audience or with a audience who's perhaps more experienced. I know you're all very well experienced, right? But when it comes to teaching young people, right, it can be useful to offer, right, without leading questions, right? Offering kids learn through contrasts, right? Happy or sad, curious or bored, right? That these can also just be helpful because they just give kids a few more guideposts along the way than just open-ended questions, which can be difficult for kids, uh, young people to answer, and adults too, for that matter. So this is the mindful seat practice. It can be a way to, you know, I often open a session settling in like this. I know educators that um, use this in classrooms as a way of helping kids settle in. It can be a writing assignment. It can be one minute. It can be 20 minutes, right? These can all expand and contract depending on the age of the kids, where they are developmentally, what kind of attention span they might have. And then lastly, <clears throat> we've talked about paying attention and the here and now. And this thing about non-judgment, acceptance and non-judgment. And this is another one that's fairly abstract for us adults. So sometimes I also say just with kindness and curiosity is sometimes also useful rather than non-judgment and acceptance. 
but also just so many of our kids, they, they are judgmental. <laughs> they struggle with self-acceptance. And again, accepting doesn't mean having to like something. I don't necessarily like the fact that I'm in math class right now, but if I fight the fact that I'm in math, I'm not going to learn anything. No one else will. I'll probably get in trouble. And if I accept it, even if I don't like it, that's a little bit different. At least I can learn. And then I know that I don't like it and that's, that's okay. It's just how it is. And then also <clears throat> I find it useful to add in a little bit of self-compassion when I think about laying out this aspect of mindfulness, non-judgment and acceptance, because it's about learning how to accept ourselves and not judge ourselves quite so harshly. Most of us here probably have that inner critic that's loudly saying, you know, you're not good enough at mindfulness or you're not good at your job or why can't you be a better parent or why can't you be, right? I know I have it even <laughs> after all these years of practicing and teaching mindfulness, it's still there, but it's quieter than it used to be. And there's a bumper sticker we have in the US that says, don't believe everything you think. And I think that that's really useful. That is such an empowering message, especially for teenagers. When I learned that not all of my thoughts were necessarily true or helpful and I don't have to believe every thought, what a relief. I still get caught up in believing them sometimes, but like, oh my gosh, I don't have to believe what that critical voice is saying. And we know also that that critical voice, it starts to kind of settle in around age eight or nine. And so the younger we start teaching kids to be aware of it and help them to develop a more compassionate inner voice, the less likely it is to, to haunt them into adulthood. And then we end up having to take mindfulness classes because we're so stressed out. So this, this, this idea that we're not quite so judgmental of ourselves, and of course, kids have internalized, whether it's messages from parents or teachers or the larger culture saying there's something wrong with you because of the way that you learn or your mental health struggles or the language your parents speak at home or the color of your skin, right? All of these things get internalized. I just want to not believe those thoughts. They might be true, but they're not necessarily true. We don't have to believe absolutely everything we think. So this is a little bit about thinking about how do we unpack that definition of mindfulness in a way that can be helpful for kids as well. And so I, I wanna talk about the way that I teach mindfulness too. Again, just really thinking about it as these elements. We can teach kids about awareness and attention. We can teach kids about how to make contact with the present moment. And we can teach kids acceptance and non-judgment. And we can also think about putting all these three things together into something that we call mindfulness perhaps. But I do also really feel like that's, that's, that's what I do. There's a lot of criticism in the world these days of, of mindfulness. Like, are we really teaching mindfulness, right? Is this, is this mic mindfulness that we're teaching anybody? And is it what we're teaching kids? And I feel like, you know, to me, it's, I'm, in many ways, I'm not trying to teach mindfulness so much as these elements that are like the one plus one that can add up to something substantial as, as young people start to grow up. So <clears throat> why don't I walk us through a little bit about stress and then into a few breath practices because I can't believe how fast the time is already going. Um, and then um, next week, we'll also get into some more adaptations. I do want to allow a few minutes for questions, knowing that I'll probably not get to all of them, but I'll, I'll try to go for about 10 more minutes. We know these days that our kids are <clears throat> unbelievably stressed out, even before the pandemic. We had this real epidemic of stress 
um, in terms of what our kids were, were facing. Um, oops, uh, let me just make sure I got that share, right? Um, right. So our kids are under tremendous stress. One of my kids I work with actually sent this to me, the student paradox, right? You can have good grades and good friends, but then you get no sleep and good sleep and good friends. You're failing your classes, good sleep and good, good marks, I suppose, if we're in England, right? Um, then you have no friends and doing all three is impossible. We know this is how so many kids feel. This doesn't even take into account, right? Pandemics and climate change and violence and political upheaval and mental illness in the home and adverse childhood events that our kids might be facing. And so we know that they're under stress. We also know that even before the pandemic, mental illness was off the charts. So at least in North America, one in three adolescents was struggling with an anxiety disorder. Right? We're seeing depression and anxiety rates skyrocket around the world. And this is definitely true in our young people as well. And a lot of it, I think, originates in stress and a lack of ways of coping with stress. And in some ways, also a lack of sitting and watching the clouds <laughs> or listening to the sounds of the forest instead of getting distracted by these things. But that's, I could give a whole five-hour talk on how I feel about technology <laughs> and kids another time. But let's just look at stress for a moment and I'll, I'll demonstrate how I share the stress response with young people. And what I'd like you to do <clears throat> along with me is start by just holding your hands up like this and just make really tight fists, just noticing how your body feels, your mind, your breath as you make tight fists like this, just squeezing. And does your mind feel open or closed? And then just let go. Notice how good it feels to let go. And then you can just collapse over in your seat like this, which is maybe how you feel at 7.30 at night on Wednesday anyway. Again, noticing your body, your breath. Do you feel awake, asleep, alert, open, closed? Then a bit more in the middle, just palms upright like this. Noticing again, mind, body, breath, open or closed, alert, asleep. And just one hand over the other and just rest these both over your heart for a moment. Same few questions. And you can just put your hands back down. If you like, you can keep them here because this is, this is pretty nice, right? <clears throat> what I'm having us do is really simulate the stress response, the fight or flight response, right? Thousands of years ago, our ancestors getting chased by saber-toothed tigers. What do you want to do if you're being chased by a tiger, right? Well, right, you maybe want to run away, flee. Or maybe if you're brave or stupid, you want to fight the tiger. Maybe it's a small tiger, right? So you have fight or flight response. We know about these. We also have the freeze response, become camouflaged, hide out a little bit, or just kind of say, forget it, give up, play dead, wait for the attack to be over. We call this tonic immobility. It's like, a, I guess you don't have possums over in Europe, right? But a, a, a mouse in a cat's mouth, if you can imagine that, right? Just kind of saying, forget it, faint. 
So what happens over time then is that the, the fight response turns into the aggression that we see in kids. The flight response, the more we avoid things that are not useful to avoid, that actually, if you go back to behaviorism 101, that only reinforces the stress response and the anxiety response, which is why we see record rates of anxiety because it's so easy to avoid whatever's stressing us out these days. So fight leads to more aggression, flight leads to more anxiety. This is a very simplistic view of mental health. I just wanna say, this is way oversimplified, freeze, that's sort of a dissociative post-traumatic stress response that faint or forget it. Teenagers have a different F word besides for forget it that they sometimes put in there besides forget it, right? That's more of like a depressive learned helplessness response. We know that learned helplessness uh, leads to its own form of depression, just sort of slowly giving up on oneself, giving up on the world. So if we oversimplify things, if we simplify things, right, then we can see where this mental health and behavioral crisis is coming in our kids. And what happens when we're in any of these is that different things happen in our brain and in our body. In the brain, the limbic system, the amygdala, the brain's alarm system, that turns on. When that is on, you can actually watch the blood flow out of the prefrontal cortex and the insular cortex. Again, this is not a neuroscience lecture. The short version is it flows out of the places where we learn and manage our impulses and are able to think things through and do critical thinking. And it also flows out of more of the social reasoning part of the brain where we have empathy and take other people's perspective. But basically when we're under threat or stress, adults or kids, right? Anybody around the world, we generally start to interpret things more as a danger see things more as a danger, right? The teacher who says, meet us after school, they're trying to ruin my life, right? The, the, the therapist like me, right? No, I don't wanna go see that guy, he's so boring, right? All those kinds of things. Everything, everyone looks like a threat. In our bodies, digestive system shuts down, um, immune system shuts down, um, heart rate starts to speed up or become irregular and breath in particular gets dysregulated. And I want to talk about that in a few moments as well. The good news is that we have evolved as human beings. We don't just have fight or flight, freeze and forget it. We have what researchers start to call the, the tend and befriend, or I like to call the attend to our experience and befriend ourselves and our experience. And I also think of these physiologically as pretty much overlapping pretty closely with mindfulness and compassion or self-compassion. And this shuts off that fight or flight response. You can watch the blood now start to flow out of the limbic system and into the prefrontal cortex, think things through. Maybe I shouldn't throw this desk across the room or run out of here screaming or put my head down and keep isolating. It turns on the insular cortex. Oh, the teacher's actually trying to help me. I don't always love going for extra help for math, but you know they're pretty helpful. My parents aren't trying to ruin my life by changing my bedtime, right? Can start to see the big picture, right? My friends aren't out to get me, right? And so then behavior changes in turn and we, we lean into the world rather than avoiding it. We're not trying to fight everything. We're actually trying to socially engage with other people. We're not giving up, but we're kind of waking up to the world in a different way. Other things, of course, in our, in our physiology also start to change a little bit as well. 
um, right? Heart rate slows down, muscles relax, immune system, digestive system start. Other neurohormones, cortisol, the stress hormone actually blocks the receptors for oxytocin, which is the safety hormone, the attachment hormone that helps us to feel safe and attached and loving and caring toward other people, bonding parents and children. It's what gets released when we're falling in love or feel safe. And our breath starts to slow down and become a little bit more regular and even as well. And so I wanna end today's session with a little bit on breathing. And I wanna say that breathing is not mindfulness, right? But breathing is the, can be the foundation of mindfulness. And here's often how I talk about the breath. That your breath can be something like a remote control that can start to turn the volume down on the alarm system in your brain and turn the volume up on the part of your brain that thinks and turn the volume up on the part of your brain that engages with other people just a little bit more effectively. And it's, it's, it's really pretty simple. I like to share basically this concept, right? It, it, we all know that you can regulate your breath and that regulates your body and that regulates your nervous system and brain. And those in turn regulate your attention, your impulses, and your emotions. I just read James Nestor's book, Breath or Breathe, I can't remember, yellow cover, so I remember it. And it had a lot about breathing and about how we wanna regulate our breath till it's about five, six breaths in a minute, especially for young people, that that's actually what calms down the nervous system and the entire body and actually sends blood to these outer regions of the brain where we can be our best, not cave person self, but we can be our best fully evolved human that we can be and we can think and we can love and we can do all of those things that, that we wanna do. And the way I think of it, sometimes when I start talking to young people is when we breathe deeper and slower, and it's important to say both because some kids, right? They'll say deep breath, they go, <gasps> right? We want actually a slow breath, not just a deep breath. We wanna think developmentally with kids. I, one of the things I learned in that book was that we actually have different receptors in the bottoms of our lungs than we do in the top of our lungs. And so if you breathe shallow, like we did probably when we were like this, and if you have kids, you've heard them get upset. This is how the crying starts, right? And when they're really focused, my son's really into his Legos. He's just slow and steady with his breath. But when the air hits just the top of our lungs, it's basically like calling, well, in North America, we say 911. I was calling emergency services, calling the fire department and the ambulance to come out and send off the alarm. When we breathe more deeply, the oxygen in the air hits the nerve endings in the bottom of our lungs. And that says to the nervous system, okay, you can relax, you can calm down. You don't have to be in fight or flight or in freeze or faint mode. You can actually tune in, you're safe enough to learn, you're safe enough to make connections with other human beings. And so essentially we can start to, to learn how to breathe. And so breathing can be really the, the basis here of how we then start to teach kids to self-regulate in their bodies, which then can start to help them into more of a mindfulness practice is where we might wanna begin. So I'll just share a few breaths that can be useful 
with younger kids and teenagers. And I, again, can't believe how fast the time is going. Um, my friend Daniel Retschoffen and I put together a, an alphabet book a few years ago of some different breath practices for younger kids, but I want to be sure I talk about teenagers too. But A stands for the alligator breath. Welcome to do the alligator breath along with me. You can put your arms out like this, like alligator jaws. And breathing in and breathing back out. Breathing in and breathing back out. Breathing in and breathing back out. B is for the, the butterfly breath, breathing in. And breathing out, breathing in, and breathing out. And a woman came to one of my workshops and she was saying, my daughter's getting a little bit old for the alligator breath. She's eight years old and she's upset in class. She's not gonna make big alligator breaths with the other eight-year-olds in her class. And she said, what, what she does now is she does baby alligator breaths under her desk, breathing in and breathing out, breathing in and breathing out. It is baby butterfly breaths that no one has to know that you're necessarily doing as you get a little bit older. Um, the other favorite of mine is um, the hot chocolate breath. Some folks might be familiar with this. You can just imagine you're holding a, holding your cuppa, I suppose, over there. Maybe you've got tea, maybe you've got hot chocolate, right? And if you've got a cup of hot chocolate or soup and it's really, really hot, what do you have to do to cool off your soup and maybe cool yourself off at the same time or your hot chocolate? Just gently. Blow out, smooth and steady, cooling off. Breathe in, smelling. And blow out, cooling off. Breathe in, smelling. Blow out, cooling off. And take a sip and just set your hot chocolate or your cup back down. So these are a few just really simple ways that we can teach kids how to how to adjust their their breath in a few different ways, alligator, butterfly, chocolate. And of course, kids will, you know, these these practices can grow along with the kids. <clears throat> So I think of it as kind of like training wheels, right? They put on the back of a bike when a kid can't balance, right? The hot chocolate holding their body like this, imagining the hot chocolate, that's like the training wheels when they're three or four years old. And my daughter, when she was two, was doing right, to cool off the soup and then she could start to do the breath. And then they get older, right? They're seven or eight years old. They don't need to hold their hands up like this. They can just hold the image in their mind. And they get a little bit older than that, eight, nine, 10 years old, they can let go of the image of the hot chocolate 
in their mind that can fade away like the training wheels can come off and they've just learned how to slowly and steadily breathe in and out that can become the foundation for their practice uh, to settle their nervous system into more of a, a significant practice as they get older. And the other thing I wanna say is that, especially with young kids, your, your mileage may vary. And I will also add that we'll be doing more adolescent practices, certainly next week as well. Um, but I, I'll just close with one story about my son who will sometimes love doing these practices. And then more recently, he was asking me, how do, he was saying, how do you spell breathing, dad? I was like, half paying attention, I'm like B-R-E, so they're like writing this down. And then he holds up this piece of paper. I wish I still had a copy of it. He had written breathing and then gotten a big red marker and made a circle around it with a slash through it. No more breathing. <laughs> Good luck with that kid, right? But he loves making up the breaths, even if he doesn't always love practicing the breaths. Our kids will get silly. I, I brought them to a conference and I was thinking, oh my gosh, I'm gonna be the most mindful dad at this conference. I'm gonna get my son on stage and have him show off these breathing practices. And everyone's gonna think I'm just so great at this mindfulness stuff. And he gets on stage and he gets ready to do the alligator breath. And he goes, thanks a lot, son. So again, we wanna think about how we set the tone as parents or kids might not always wanna learn from us and kids do get silly sometimes, um, but this is just a little bit of a, an introduction to some breath practices. Um, next, next week, I wanna get a little bit more into breath practices that are useful for adolescents, and then also thinking about what are the ways that we can um, think about other kinds of adaptations, um, other visualizations, other movement practices, other things that are gonna resonate for the kids uh, that we work with, because we know not everyone is gonna to wanna to start with breathing or that that's necessarily the best way for, for everyone to learn. But um, I realized I, I blew through this hour. Um, I, I probably have time for about one question if that's, if that's possible. And feel free to, to send me more questions. Um, I've got my, my information up here if you wanna um, shoot me an email or something like that in the meantime, and I can be sure to try to address it um, next week as well. But any, any questions for right now in the chat? Um, it is totally possible to get access to the slides. Actually, you know what I, this is, I feel so high tech now. Here's what I just did. If you want access to my slides, um, I put a QR code on the last slide and it'll take you to my website where there's a sign up form to get a copy of the slides from the workshop. Um, you can also just go to drchristopherwillard.com and, and sign up to get a copy of the slides. Thank you, Chris. What a joyful session that was. And uh, I'm sure I'm speaking on behalf of everybody to say a huge, huge thank you to you for sharing that in such a delightful way and so illuminative and with your examples. It was, it was really just beautiful. So thank you so much. And this, this idea about mindfulness being contagious, that as we are mindful, that people around us become mindful. And uh, that, is, that is such a lovely message um, as, we, as we sometimes strive to help the people around us to be more mindful. So <laughs> thank you so much for that. And another lovely uh, nugget that I, I picked up on, if, you know, if we can help ch children uh, uh, develop this compassionate inner voice rather than this critical inner voice. And if we can drop that in early on, 
Um, and you may be sitting there thinking, well, I might not work with children, but you know, and you may, uh, there may be parents here, grandparents, there may be people who work with children, but you may just use some of these uh, techniques to help you understand more about the children in you or the young people who are around you um, as you go about your daily business. So um, this next generation of young people, how can we just help to maneuver them? Uh, and our own mindfulness practice is, is so helpful for that. So thank you, Chris. Uh, so much and i'm so looking forward to next week and i'm sure again i speak for everybody when i when i say that so thanks ever so much for sharing and without further ado just to say that keep your eye on the website there will be another session here with chris next week and we look forward to that um, and just keep an eye on the website we'll, we'll be scheduling uh, in the next sessions uh, over the rest of august and, and through to the end of the year so you know we will be here regularly for you uh, as part of this community of uh, like-minded people we're all here to learn from each other and um, and again thank you so much Chris for, for for sharing so generously your time and and all your lovely work that you're doing and I say lovely but I mean it's so it is lovely but actually it's at the heart of this next generation of of our society so it's such important work so thank you so much for that and uh, I know we've gone a minute over, but if you'd like to unmute to say um, uh, bye in your native languages, it's always great to hear that. So please unmute so we can hear everybody who's been together with us to, uh, for this session. Thank you, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Goodbye. Thanks, everybody. That's great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 B